Section 11 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1909-1912. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. President William H. Taft, December 5, 1911, Part 4B. Rivers and Harbors. The estimates for the river and harbor improvements reach $32 million for the coming year. I wish to urge that whenever a project has been adopted by Congress as one to be completed, the more money which can be economically expended in its construction in each year, the greater the ultimate economy. This has especial application to the improvement of the Mississippi River and its large branches. It seems to me that an increase in the amount of money now being annually expended in the improvement of the Ohio River, which has been formally adopted by Congress, would be in the interest of the public. A similar change ought to be made during the present Congress in the amount to be appropriated for the Missouri River. The engineers say that the cost of the improvement of the Missouri River from Kansas City to St. Louis, in order to secure six feet as a permanent channel, will reach $20 million. There have been at least three recommendations from the Chief of Engineers that if the improvement be adopted, $2 million should be expended upon it annually. This particular improvement is especially entitled to the attention of Congress because a company has been organized in Kansas City with a capital of $1 million, which has built steamers and barges, and is actually using the river for transportation in order to show what can be done in the way of affecting rates between Kansas City and St. Louis, and in order to manifest their good faith and confidence in respect of the improvement. I urgently recommend that the appropriation for this improvement be increased from $600,000, as recommended now in the completion of a contract, to $2 million annually, so that the work may be done in 10 years. Waterway from the Lakes to the Gulf The project for a navigable waterway from Lake Michigan to the mouth of the Illinois River and thence, via the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico, is one of national importance. In view of the work already accomplished by the Sanitary District of Chicago, an agency of the state of Illinois, which has constructed the most difficult and costly stretch of this waterway and made it an asset of the nation, and in view of the fact that the people of Illinois have authorized the expenditure of $20 million to carry this waterway 62 miles farther to Utica, I feel that it is fitting that this work should be supplemented by the government, and that the expenditures recommended by the Special Board of Engineers on the waterway from Utica to the mouth of the Illinois River be made upon lines which, while providing a waterway for the nation, should otherwise benefit that state to the fullest extent. 
I recommend that the term of service of said special board of engineers be continued and that it be empowered to reopen the question of the treatment of the lower Illinois River and to negotiate with a properly constituted commission representing the state of Illinois and to agree upon a plan for the improvement of the lower Illinois River and upon the extent to which the United States may properly cooperate with the state of Illinois in securing the construction of a navigable waterway from Lockport to the mouth of the Illinois River in conjunction with the development of water power by that state between Lockport and Utica. The Department of Justice. Removal of Clerks of Federal Courts. The report of the Attorney General shows that he has subjected to close examination the accounts of the clerks of the federal courts, that he has found a good many which disclose irregularities or dishonesty, but that he has had considerable difficulty in securing an effective prosecution or removal of the clerks thus derelict. I am certainly not unduly prejudiced against the federal courts, but the fact is that the long and confidential relations which grow out of the tenure for life on the part of the judge and the practical tenure for life on the part of the clerk are not calculated to secure the strictness of dealing by the judge with the clerk in respect to his fees and accounts which assures in the clerk's conduct a freedom from overcharges and carelessness. The relationship between the judge and the clerk makes it ungracious for members of the bar to complain of the clerk or for department examiners to make charges against him to be heard by the court, and an order of removal of a clerk and a judgment for the recovery of fees are in some cases reluctantly entered by the judge. For this reason, I recommend an amendment to the law whereby the president shall be given power to remove the clerks for cause. This provision need not interfere with the right of the judge to appoint his clerk or to remove him. French Spoliation Awards in my last message, I recommended to Congress that it authorize the payment of the findings or judgments of the Court of Claims in the matter of the French spoliation cases. There has been no appropriation to pay these judgments since 1905. The findings and awards were obtained after a very bitter fight, the government succeeding in about 75% of the cases. The amount of the awards ought, as a matter of good faith on the part of the government, to be paid. Employers' Liability and Workmen's Compensation Commission The limitation of the liability of the master to his servant for personal injuries to such as are occasioned by his fault has been abandoned in most civilized countries and provision made whereby the employee injured in the course of his employment is compensated for his loss of working ability, irrespective of negligence. The principle upon which such provision proceeds is that accidental injuries to workmen in modern industry, 
with its vast complexity and inherent dangers arising from complicated machinery and the use of the great forces of steam and electricity, should be regarded as risks of the industry and the loss borne in some equitable proportion by those who for their own profit engage therein. In recognition of this, the last Congress authorized the appointment of a commission to investigate the subject of employers' liability and workmen's compensation, and to report the result of their investigations, through the President, to Congress. This commission was appointed and has been at work, holding hearings, gathering data, and considering the subject, and, it is expected, will be able to report by the first of the year, in accordance with the provisions of the law. It is hoped and expected that the Commission will suggest legislation which will enable us to put in the place of the present wasteful and sometimes unjust system of employers' liability a plan of compensation which will afford some certain and definite relief to all employees who are injured in the course of their employment in those industries which are subject to the regulating power of Congress. Measures to prevent delay and unnecessary cost of litigation. In promotion of the movement for the prevention of delay and unnecessary cost in litigation, I am glad to say that the Supreme Court has taken steps to reform the present equity rules of the federal courts, and that we may, in the near future, expect a revision of them which will be a long step in the right direction. The American Bar Association has recommended to Congress several bills expediting procedure, one of which has already passed the House unanimously February 6, 1911. This directs that no judgment should be set aside or reversed or new trial granted unless it appears to the court, after an examination of the entire cause, that the error complained of has injuriously affected the substantial rights of the parties and also provides for the submission of issues of fact to a jury, reserving questions of law for subsequent argument and decision. I hope this bill will pass the Senate and become law, for it will simplify the procedure at law. Another bill to amend Chapter 2 of the Judicial Code in order to avoid errors in pleading was presented by the same association and one enlarging the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court so as to permit that court to examine, upon a writ of error, all cases in which any right or title is claimed under the Constitution or any statute or treaty of the United States, whether the decision in the court below has been against the right or title or in its favor. Both these measures are in the interest of justice and should be passed. Post Office At the beginning of the present administration in 1909, the Postal Service was in arrears to the extent of 17,479,770.47. 
it was very much the largest deficit on record. In the brief space of two years, this has been turned into a surplus of $220,000, which has been accomplished without curtailment of the postal facilities, as may be seen by the fact that there have been established 3,744 new post offices. Delivery by carrier has been added to the service in 186 cities. 2,516 new rural routes have been established, covering 60,000 miles. The force of postal employees has been increased in these two years by more than 8,000, and their average annual salary has had a substantial increase. Postal Savings System On January 3, 1911, Postal Savings Depositories were established, experimentally, in 48 states and territories. After three months' successful operation, the system was extended, as rapidly as feasible, to the 7,500 post offices of the first, second, and third classes constituting the presidential grade. By the end of the year, Practically all of these will have been designated, and then the system will be extended to all fourth-class post offices doing a money order business. In selecting post offices for depositories, consideration was given to the efficiency of the postmasters, and only those offices where the ratings were satisfactory to the department have been designated. Withholding designation from postmasters with unsatisfactory ratings has had a salutary effect on the service. The deposits have kept pace with the extension of the system, amounting to only $60,652 at the end of the first month's operation in the experimental offices, they increased to $679,310 by July, and now, after 11 months of operation, have reached a total of $11 million. This sum is distributed among 2,710 banks and protected under the law by bonds deposited with the Treasurer of the United States. Under the method adopted for the conduct of the system, certificates are issued as evidence of deposits, and accounts with depositors are kept by the post offices instead of by the department. Compared with the practice in other countries of entering deposits in passbooks and keeping at the central office a ledger account with each depositor, the use of the certificate has resulted in great economy of administration. The depositors thus far number approximately 150,000. They include 40 nationalities, Native Americans largely predominating, and English and Italians coming next. The first conversion of deposits into United States bonds bearing interest at the rate of 2.5% occurred on July 1, 1911, the amount of deposits exchanged being $41,900, 
or a little more than 6% of the total outstanding certificates of deposit on June 30th. Of this issue, bonds to the value of $6,120 were in coupon form and $35,780 in registered form. Parcel Post Steps should be taken immediately for the establishment of a rural parcel post. In the estimates of appropriations needed for the maintenance of the Postal Service for the ensuing fiscal year, an item of $150,000 has been inserted to cover the preliminary expense of establishing a parcel post on rural mail routes as well as to cover an investigation having for its object the final establishment of a general parcel post on all railway and steamboat transportation routes. The department believes that after the initial expenses of establishing the system are defrayed and the parcel post is in full operation on the rural routes, it will not only bring in sufficient revenue to meet its cost, but also a surplus that can be utilized in paying the expenses of a parcel post in the city delivery service. It is hoped that Congress will authorize the immediate establishment of a limited parcel post on such rural routes as may be selected, providing for the delivery along the routes of parcels not exceeding 11 pounds, which is the weight limit for the international parcel post, or at the post office from which such route emanates, or on another route emanating from the same office. Such preliminary service will prepare the way for the more thorough and comprehensive inquiry contemplated in asking for the appropriation mentioned enable the department to gain definite information concerning the practical operation of a general system, and, at the same time, extend the benefit of the service to a class of people who, above all others, are specially in need of it. The suggestion that we have a general parcel post has awakened great opposition on the part of some who think that it will have the effect to destroy the business of the country storekeeper. Instead of doing this, I think the change will greatly increase business for the benefit of all. The reduction in the cost of living it will bring about ought to make its coming certain. The Navy Department. On the 2nd of November last, I reviewed the fighting fleet of battleships and other vessels assembled in New York Harbor consisting of 24 battleships, two armored cruisers, two cruisers, 22 destroyers, 12 torpedo boats, eight submarines, and other attendant vessels, making 98 vessels of all classes of a tonnage of 576,634 tons. Those who saw the fleet were struck with its preparedness, and with its high military efficiency. All Americans should be proud of its personnel. The fleet was deficient in the number of torpedo destroyers, in cruisers, and in colliers, 
as well as in large battleship cruisers, which are now becoming a very important feature of foreign navies, notably the British, German, and Japanese. The building plan for this year contemplates two battleships and two colliers. This is because the other and smaller vessels can be built much more rapidly in case of emergency than the battleships. And we certainly ought to continue the policy of two battleships a year until after the Panama Canal is finished and until in our first line and in our reserve line we can number 40 available vessels of proper armament and size. The reorganization of the Navy and the appointment of four aides to the Secretary have continued to demonstrate their usefulness. It would be difficult now to administer the affairs of the Navy without the expert counsel and advice of these aides, and I renew the recommendation which I made last year that the aides be recognized by statute. It is certain that the Navy, with its present size, should have admirals in active command higher than rear admirals. The recognized grades in order are Admiral of the Fleet, Admiral, Vice Admiral, and Rear Admiral. Our great battleship fleet is commanded by a Rear Admiral, with four other Rear Admirals under his orders. This is not as it should be and when questions of precedence arise between our naval officers and those of European navies, the American Rear Admiral, though in command of ten times the force of a foreign Vice Admiral, must yield precedence to the latter. Such an absurdity ought not to prevail, and it can be avoided by the creation of two or three positions of flag rank above that of Rear Admiral. I attended the opening of the new training school at North Chicago, Illinois, and am glad to note the opportunity which this gives for drawing upon young men of the country from the interior, from farms, stores, shops, and offices, which ensures a high average of intelligence and character among them and which they showed in the very wonderful improvement in discipline and drill which only a few short weeks' presence at the naval station had made. I invite your attention to the consideration of the new system of detention and of punishment for Army and Navy enlisted men, which has obtained in Great Britain, and which has made greatly for the better control of the men we should adopt a similar system here. Like the Treasury Department and the War Department, the Navy Department has given much attention to economy and administration and has cut down a number of unnecessary expenses and reduced its estimates, except for construction and the increase that that involves. I urge upon Congress the necessity for an immediate increase of 2,000 men in the enlisted strength of the Navy, provided for in the estimates. 4,000 more are now needed to man all the available vessels. There are in the service today 
about 47,750 enlisted men of all ratings. Careful computation shows that in April 1912, 49,166 men will be required for vessels in commission, and 3,000 apprentice seamen should be kept under training at all times. Abolition of Navy Yards The Secretary of the Navy has recommended the abolition of certain of the smaller and unnecessary Navy Yards, and, in order to furnish a complete and comprehensive report, has referred the question of all Navy Yards to the Joint Board of the Army and Navy. This board will shortly make its report, and the Secretary of the Navy advises me that his recommendations on the subject will be presented early in the coming year. The measure of economy contained in a proper handling of this subject is so great and so important to the interests of the nation that I shall present it to Congress as a separate subject apart from my annual message. Concentration of the necessary work for naval vessels in a few navy yards on each coast is a vital necessity if proper economy in government expenditures is to be attained. Amalgamation of Staff Corps in the Navy The Secretary of the Navy is striving to unify the various corps of the Navy to the extent possible and thereby stimulate a Navy spirit as distinguished from a corps spirit. In this, he has my warm support. All officers are to be naval officers first and specialists afterwards. This means that officers will take up at least one specialty, such as ordnance, construction, or engineering. This is practically what is done now. Only some of the specialists, like the pay officers and naval constructors, are not of the line. It is proposed to make them all of the line. All combatant corps should obviously be of the line. This necessitates amalgamating the pay officers and also those engaged in the technical work of producing the finished ship. This is at present the case with the single exception of the naval constructors whom it is now proposed to amalgamate with the line. Council of National Defense I urge again upon Congress the desirability of establishing the Council of National Defense. The bill to establish this council was before Congress last winter, and it is hoped that this legislation will pass during the present session. The purpose of the council is to determine the general policy of national defense and to recommend to Congress and to the President such measures relating to it as it shall deem necessary and expedient. No such machinery is now provided by which the readiness of the Army and Navy may be improved and the programs of military and naval requirements shall be coordinated and properly scrutinized with a view of the necessities of the whole nation, rather than of separate departments. Departments of Agriculture and Commerce and Labor 
for the consideration of matters which are pending or have been disposed of in the Agricultural Department and in the Department of Commerce and Labor, I refer to the very excellent reports of the secretaries of those departments. I shall not be able to submit to Congress until after the Christmas holidays the question of conservation of our resources arising in Alaska and the West, and the question of the rate for second-class mail matter in the Post Office Department. Commission on Efficiency and Economy The law does not require the submission of the reports of the Commission on Economy and Efficiency until the 31st of December. I shall therefore not be able to submit a report of the work of that commission until the assembling of Congress after the holidays. Civil Retirement and Contributory Pension System I have already advocated in my last annual message the adoption of a civil service retirement system with a contributory feature to it so as to reduce to a minimum the cost to the government of the pensions to be paid. After considerable reflection, I am very much opposed to a pension system that involves no contribution from the employees. I think the experience of other governments justifies this view, but the crying necessity for some such contributory system, with possibly a preliminary governmental outlay in order to cover the initial cost and to set the system going at once while the contributions are accumulating, is manifest on every side. Nothing will so much promote the economy and efficiency of the government as such a system. Elimination of all local offices from politics. I wish to renew again my recommendation that all the local offices throughout the country, including collectors of internal revenue, collectors of customs, postmasters of all four classes, immigration commissioners and marshals, should be, by law, covered into the classified service. The necessity for confirmation by the Senate be removed, and the President and the others, whose time is now taken up in distributing this patronage under the custom that has prevailed since the beginning of the government, in accordance with the recommendation of the senators and congressmen of the majority party, should be relieved from this burden. I am confident that such a change would greatly reduce the cost of administering the government, and that it would add greatly to its efficiency. It would take away the power to use the patronage of the government for political purposes. When officers are recommended by senators and congressmen from political motives and for political services rendered, it is impossible to expect that, while in office, the appointees will not regard their tenure as more or less dependent upon continued political service for their patrons, and no regulations, however stiff or rigid, will prevent this because such regulations, in view of the method and motive for selection, are plainly inconsistent, 
and deemed hardly worthy of respect. End of section 11.